Welcome back to Round 12, the podcast that will always be dedicated to growth, development, and motivational mastery. I am your host, Sensei Roger B. Hamilton. Thank you for joining us again today for another episode of the Round 12 podcast series. Let's go get it. The Grind. Rise and shine. 6 a.m. and your hand can't make it to the alarm clock before the voices in your head start telling you that it's too early, too dark, and too cold to get out of bed. Aching muscles lie still in rebellion, pretending not to hear your brain commanding them to move. A legion of voices are shouting their unanimous permission for you to hit the snooze button and go back to dreamland. But you didn't ask their opinion. The voice you've chosen to listen to is one of defiance. A voice that says there was a reason you set that alarm in the first place. So sit up, put your feet on the floor, and don't look back, because we've got work to do. Welcome to the grind. For what is each day but a series of conflicts between the right way and the easy way? 10,000 streams fan out like a river delta before you, each one promising the path of least resistance. Thing is, you're headed upstream. And when you make that choice, when you decide to turn your back on what's comfortable and safe and what some would call common sense, well, that's day one. From there, it only gets tougher. So just make sure this is something you want because the easy way out will always be there, ready to wash you away. All you have to do is pick up your feet. But you aren't going to, are you? With each step comes the decision to take another. You're on your way now, but this is no time to dwell on how far you've come. You're in a fight against an opponent you can't see, but oh, you can feel him on your heels, can't you? Feel him breathing down your neck. You know what that is? That's you. Your fears, your doubts, and insecurities all lined up like a firing squad, ready to shoot you out of the sky. But don't lose heart. While they're not easily defeated, they are far from invincible. Remember, this is the grind, the battle royale between you and your mind, your body, and the devil on your shoulders telling you that this is just a game. This is just a waste of time. Your opponents are stronger than you. Drown out the voice of uncertainty with the sound of your own heartbeat. Burn away your self-doubt with a fire lit beneath you. Remember what we're fighting for and never forget that momentum is a cruel mistress. She can turn out a dime or the smallest mistake. She is ever searching for the weak place in your armor, that one tiny thing you forgot to prepare for. So as long as the devil is hiding the details, the question remains, is that all you got? Are you sure? And when the answer is yes, when you've done all you can to prepare yourself for battle, then it's time to go forth and boldly face your enemy, the enemy within. Only now you must take that fight into the open, into hostile territory. You're a lion in a field of lions, all hunting the same elusive prey with a desperate starvation that says victory is the only thing that can keep you alive. So believe that voice that says you can run a little faster and you can throw a little harder and that for you, the laws of physics are merely a suggestion. Luck is the last dying wish of those who want to believe that winning can happen by accident. Sweat, on the other hand, is for those who know it's a choice. So decide now, because destiny waits for no man. And when your time comes and a thousand different voices are trying to tell you you're not ready for it, listen instead to that lone voice of dissent. The one that says you are ready, you are prepared, it's all up to you now. So rise and shine. It was 1980. My body now looked like I had been chiseled from stone. 
In many ways, I felt better than I ever did. But in others, I was extremely disgruntled. I was concerned about my future. I would go to nightclubs and bars with friends, and I would watch people's lives disintegrating. The kind of physical shape I was in had not been easy to come by. I wasn't going to throw it away to live that false life of the 80s drug-induced bliss. I started becoming interested in self-development books. I read books like Robert Ringer's Looking Out for Number One and Dr. Norman Vincent Peale's The Power of Positive Thinking, The Prophet by Khalil Gibran, The Autobiography of Malcolm X by Alex Haley, Karate Do, My Way of Life by Gichin Funakoshi, labeled the father of American karate, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, and Future Shock by Alvin Toffler. I didn't understand all of what I was reading, and I didn't read these books straight through. Being the hyperactive, warrior-like character that I was then, it was difficult to sit still for too long at a time. But I found great comfort as well, as much as some needed direction from these very interesting and thought-provoking books. I started quoting some of the things that I read. I like to hear myself repeating such words of wisdom. I had begun to walk it the way I talked it. If I wanted someone to be punctual, then I would be punctual. If I expected someone to be considerate, it was because I was considerate. I didn't tell anybody what they should do, but I knew what I had to do. I ate virtually no red meat or dairy products except for yogurt and small pats of butter. I now ate plenty of vegetables and had an, and ate an abundance of fruit. I drank water like I was on a desert, and my fat intake was very minimal. I had also done away with most fried foods. I was healthy. I was in shape, and I was going to keep it that way. A statement I read from one of the books at the time has always stuck with me. It was a quote from a book called Maximum Performance by an author whose name I don't remember. The statement read, The manner in which we perform even the most mundane acts is a statement of who we are. We resemble our performance, and our performance resembles us. I had begun to live my life in such a precise manner, I left no room for mediocrity, though I was without great finances, though I was living in a small basement apartment, though I was from nowhere with no direction to lead me anywhere, I became my own living example of positive thinking. I still believed that the only thing that would stop me from accomplishing these things that I wanted to accomplish was death. I would never quit. I felt that I had earned the right to be happy or to make something of myself. I smiled more and I was genuinely more peaceful than I had ever been. I had learned my environment and I knew how to handle myself. I had grown a great deal. It was as if my adult life was just the beginning. I had obviously impressed my peers in martial arts enough to be considered viable. My next big fight would be my first real test. I was still a brown belt. But the next time I fought, it would be against the black belt. In our area of the East Coast, we had intermittent karate events that were called set matches. The matches would pair up competitors who were successful in tournament competition and have them fight one-on-one for several rounds. Unlike open tournaments, the competitors would fight only each other, similar to a boxing match. Usually, 
There would be some promotional hype before the matches, and advertising in the form of posters and flyers would be circulated around town. These matches were generally reserved for black belts. The black belts from Toro Dojo had participated in several set match contests and had usually fared very well. This particular set match was between the black belts of Plainfield, Newark, and Patterson, New Jersey. Two black belts from Toro Dojo, Sensei Mike Burrows and Sensei Kenny Reed, were scheduled to fight that evening. In the past, I had served as the photographer for most of our events. I figured this event would be no different in that I would photograph until one evening after class when Sensei Ford made an announcement to me. I want you to fight in the set, Matt, coming up, sir. He said very nonchalantly. Sir, isn't that for black belts only? I asked with a puzzled look on my face. Don't worry, Mr. Bush, he encouraged quietly. You can handle it. They need another fighter and we don't have another black belt. We'll put a black belt on you. And the way you fight, they won't know the difference. Mr. Ford punctuated as he spoke. It's fine with me, sir, I replied. If you say so. So eight months before I was officially awarded my black belt, I would be fighting a guy with 10 years experience in the arts. The night of the match, I invited my old partner in crime, Bruce Jackson, and he accepted my invitation and brought his wife. And she also took pictures of the event, a lot of pictures on my dad. I also invited a young lady friend of mine, which is the first time I had done that. Even though I was fighting for the first time as a black belt and I was still officially a brown belt, if my instructors felt that I could take care of business, then I was certain I could too. It was November of the year. I was 24 years old. The match was held at the Plainfield YMCA. I must tell you, the event was a smoker. An excellent crowd turned out for the night. They were loud and energetic and passionate. We had some special dignitaries on hand as judges as well. In attendance was Kevin Thompson, a.k.a. Little K.A. At present, he's still one of the top world champion tournament competitors on the East Coast and formerly a member of the Budweiser and currently a member of the John Paul Mitchell Elite Competition Team. His brother, Earl Thompson, was also in attendance. He was another well-known, well-established East Coast martial artist. There were many other top-notch black belts on hand that night. Even before the match began, the crowd was buzzing from excitement. <laughs> I love the idea of fighting in a set match. I had always wanted to fight in a match like that, uh, and it was running time instead of having to stop and check for points along the way. I felt that I would perform better than if I ever, ever had uh, when I could throw a continuous series of techniques. It would certainly be more reasonably resemble a real boxing match or fight. When my time came to step on the floor, I was as ready as could be. I put that black belt on my waist like it had been mine all along. When I stepped into the ring, I peered aggressively at my sizable opponent. He peered back, and I could feel the tension in a two-tiered gymnasium. We touched gloves, bowed to the referee, then bowed to each other. I immediately threw a roundhouse kick to my opponent's body and backed him up several steps. He was wearing a face mask for protection, sort of like boxer's headgear that covered his nose and cheeks. And the action became so furious and so fast, he had to take that mask off. He couldn't seem to keep adjusting it amidst the barrage of punches and kicks I was throwing. You could see the surprise on his experienced black belt's face. I was beating this man like he talked about my mother. I obviously had the better legs and kicks, and he was doing everything he could to slow me down. He resorted to trying to evade to extreme power I was throwing, 
And, and when the first round ended, I remembered my instructors trying to contain their laughter and enthusiasm on the sideline. <laughs> Mr. Bush, he don't know what to do with you. Mr. Burroughs said excitedly with a restrained smile. Mr. Bush, just keep doing what you're doing. Mr. Ford instructed, this guy can't handle you. Just keep the pressure on him. He punctuated, still smiling. And that's just what I do. The next round was a continuation of the first, and I was cutting off every corner of the ring that this man ran to. It was strange because I was in heaven, except for the fact that he kept running. Suddenly, in a burst of emotion and ferocity, I ripped my uniform top off and threw it to the floor. Underneath was a sleeveless tank top with a Toro Dojo patch sewn on it. I could hear the crowd gasp as I revealed my well-conditioned body to them. Suddenly, I heard a roar of cheers and screams. My opponent didn't know quite what to make of it all. He would later tell me that he would think twice before entering into a set match with a stranger again. He and his brothers were very well known in karate circles, and he ran several schools, but he was extremely curious as to why he had never heard of me. The match can continued the same way it started, and I was the obvious aggressor, and he was hanging on for dear life. By the end of the final round, I was still fresh. I had a wonderful time, and I had proven something to myself about my ability and about my conditioning. Curiously, though, when the final calculations were completed, he seemed to have more points on the judges' scorecards than I did. Nevertheless, we knew who the winner was. The match was officially over and they awarded first and second place trophies. I clutched my second place trophy with pleasure and pride. I knew I had done my job and I had done my best. I was happy and my instructors were very happy. When I talked to my opponent after the match, he lamented with a frown. Damn, he said. When you fight you, you know you're in a fight, he complimented. Hey, man, I said with a shrug. What can I say? He would later invite me to fight in a huge set match that he himself sponsored. He had no choice but to be impressed. After the match, Bruce also commented on my performance in his own subdued, coded, inimitable fashion. Okay, man, you can fight, he said nonchalantly with a half smile. As always, when Bruce gave a compliment, he meant it. Admittedly, in the real world, he himself could fight as well. My instructors fought very well that night, too, and when it was all said and done, we had an outstanding night of action. I had fought my first fight as a black belt, and the next day word had traveled. I was being called the Incredible Hulk because of the way I had ripped off my gi top. I was gaining more and more composure from my accomplishments in martial arts. I felt like I belonged to a supportive, respectful group of black men, and I continued training diligently. Unfortunately, as November came to a close, I would have to concern myself with my income. As it quite often happens in the construction industry, the onset of winter severely limits the availability of work. Sandy Odato, the tile setter I was working for, painfully informed me that he didn't have enough work to keep me on. I certainly understood his predicament, and we parted the winter as good friends. I had enjoyed the experience. As I had done many times before, I searched the classified ads for work. I always had a yearning to drive tractor trailer trucks for a living, but I had no way of acquiring the credential. So I always seemed to go directly to the truck driver section when I scanned the newspaper. The holiday season had come and gone, and I had no luck in finding work. My financial situation became extremely tentative until one morning 
out of desperation, I answered an ad for sale. The ad indicated that no experience was necessary. Of course, I had some experiences which put me ahead of the game. When I showed up for an interview at the address provided, I encountered a young Italian gentleman and his secretary. The man's name was Michael Biviano. The name of the company, WM Industries. After completing an application, I was granted a brief interview. I learned that the business was consumer direct sales. My job would be to sell liquidated or discontinued merchandise directly to the general public. The young manager indicated that he was interested in hiring me and that I should return the following day for a more in-depth interview and look at what I should expect. He seemed hesitant to explain any further. I agreed, and the following day I showed up bright and early. I was eager to find out if this job could make me some money my financial situation had gotten desperate. When I arrived as scheduled, I encountered several other young men, all Caucasian, who were also there to learn more about the position. The smiling young manager introduced me to his assistant manager, who was also a Caucasian male, and informed me that we all would be trained by him. Suddenly, all the potential sales candidates were climbing into his large van. We would learn on the road. We piled into the van, and in very short order, we were driving down the highway. There was a misty rain falling that day, and it looked very dreary outdoors. The young assistant manager, whose name was James Brown, began explaining the job to the curious recruits. I was riding shotgun, and he directed much of his conversation toward me. Our job, as he put it, would consist of cold calling on random businesses and the general public. His van was filled with assorted merchandise, which was, which was our wares. The merch included a 32-piece corningware set, a 10-piece pot and pan set, some with silverstone and Teflon coating, marble chess sets, and all kinds of other stuff. Supposedly, the merchandise would be given to us on consignment, and we would be charged a minimum price once we sold the goods. He handed us all a printed card with eight steps to follow. He began rambling off the steps from memory and emphasized that in order to be successful, we must follow all the steps. The steps included calling on every business or every person we met during our workday. He emphasized that we should not be selective. Everyone was a potential sale. James Brown continued his training by informing us that any profit we received that was over and above the minimum cost of the merchandise was ours to keep. All right, I interrupted. What's the catch? There's no catch, James said. It's just that simple. When we introduced ourselves to customers, we were to inform them that we worked for a liquidation company. All the merchandise was supposed to be closed out merchandise available one time only. We had been driving for about 45 minutes when our trainer stopped his van in front of a floor shop. Okay, James said. Who wants to go first? I'll go, I replied eagerly. I was anxious to try this thing out. I didn't know about those other dudes, but I needed to know if I could make something out of this as soon as possible. James handed me a clipboard with assorted sales flyers and information on the company. He then suggested that I carry some merchandise with me during the call. Customers love to be able to see and touch the merch, he informed. So, like the crazy, try-anything guy that I was, I climbed from the van, 
and walked out into the misty rain with a box of merchandise under each arm. I walked into the place of business and boldly announced myself. Good morning, I said to the Caucasian lady at the counter. My name is Roger Hamilton. I represent a company called WM Industries. We're a liquidation company and I have brand new merchandise for sale at a one-time low price. I'd been listening attentively to my trainer talk and I already had developed my pitch. I immediately took the large box of corning ware from under my arm and handed it to the surprised middle-aged woman. She immediately began to examine it. Now, this Corningware set would cost you 50 or $60 in the department stores, I continued, but I'm selling it at a one-time low price of $30. I seem to have no problem asking this complete stranger for her money, and you know what? She bought it. I thanked her, and we quickly concluded our exchange. I walked from the store with a calm look on my face, but inside I was screaming. I casually approached the van as the ogling group of white boys remained frozen. How'd you do? James asked, finding it impossible to contain his curiosity. I got $30 for it, I responded while handing the cash over to him. Good, he explained. That's how, that's how it works. That's how it's done. This is yours, he said, as he handed me $14. The coinware set cost you $16, he explained. The profit you keep. Bet, I explained. I got the idea. The wheels in my head began instantly to turn. I knew that if this was all I had to do, I would be back on my feet in no time. Needless to say, I took the job. The other trainees finally got up enough courage to try their hand. Unfortunately, they were not as successful as I was. To James's credit, he continued encouraging them. By the time the day was over, I had made several more sales and I was anxious to get out on my own. When our day was over and we returned to the office, the manager was very congratulatory. He said he was happy to have me on board and that the following day I could pick up my own merchandise. I left that place on cloud nine. I knew I could make this thing fly. The next day I fell into WM Industries ready to go. Just give me my merch and let me go, I was thinking. But there was one aspect of the job that had been left out. Each morning, it was mandatory that everyone participate in a pep rally of sorts. This circus-like yelling and screaming session was supposed to motivate, but just like the procedure I had encountered at Kirby Vacuums, it actually demotivated me. I could not bring myself to participate in the madness. As it was, I was the only brother on staff, and I felt like a fool sitting in the room while all these goofy-acting white folks went berserk. I sat completely still while they all stood and clapped and chanted. When the session was finally over, the 21-year-old manager approached me. Now, Roger, he said, as if he was talking to a child, you have to cheer. When we all cheer, he instructed, you got to do it too. You'll forgive me, I said sternly, but that's not why I'm here. I came here to pick up my merchandise and sell, I said, while looking right at him. With all due respect to you and your other employees, I'm not going to do that. I meant it, too. I was giving this young dynamo the opportunity to make up his mind right away if he wanted me to stay. I would sell and I would be respectful, but I wasn't coming in there acting like no fool for them. Absolutely not. I found out immediately what kind of manipulative young character I was dealing with. He looked at me with a long, piercing stare. 
Suddenly, his expression completely changed and he withdrew. That's okay, he said. Don't worry about it. But you have to at least show up every morning, he punctuated. I'll show up, I replied, but I'm not doing any of that crazy stuff. Michael shook his head silently and we proceeded out to the warehouse to load the inventory into my car. As soon as my car was loaded, I was out of there and selling. I don't know what those other people's situations were, but I needed to make some money. Sure enough, when I returned at the end of the day, having sold almost everything I had been given, they were outdone. They swore I had sold the goods to family members or friends. To the contrary, I followed the steps to the letter and sold every bit of that merchandise to complete strangers. I realized in one day on the road that I had a definite talent for sales. I immediately set a goal for myself. I announced to the young manager and assistant manager that I would not return after a day's work without making at least 10 sales, which would equate to a minimum of $60 per day. That meant every day. They responded skeptically until after several weeks, I hadn't missed one day. Most days, I made much more than 10 sales, usually in the area of 25 to 30, but I never made less. As I recall, I was one of only three people who worked there who could boast of such consistency. The other two were the manager and the assistant manager. Admittedly, these guys could sell. I had made up my mind that I was not going to bother doing this job if it wasn't going to pay off. Usually, I made about $100 per day. I must say, whatever aptitude I had for sales was polished and perfected during that passionate execution of a job. To be able to walk up to a perfect stranger and convince them to buy from you, to convince them to reach into their pocket and hand you their hard-earned green and walk away with a smile was one of the greatest feelings of accomplishment I have ever known. I began perfecting my people skills. I learned to put people at ease and eliminate much of the apprehension that non-black people had with black males. And when I sold to other black people, they seemed impressed by my newfound expertise. Though I dressed casually and drove around in a car that was filled with all kinds of merchandise, I rarely had problems with police or anything else for that matter. My customers were everyone from little old ladies to business executives. I sold in cities and in rural areas. I sold in insurance companies and in banks. I would quite often draw large crowds during my presentation, and I made some substantial profits. This job was the start of something big for me. I began to carry the merchandise with me everywhere I went after a while, and I began to realize that I had more control over my own destiny than I ever had before, and it was legal. The entrepreneurial spirit had been revived inside of me. It felt so natural to me, even though after several weeks and many more employees, I still refused to act the fool in the mornings with everybody else. I would always just sit there while they all gave their testimonials and went nuts. Sometimes it reminded me of church. They were all feeding off each other. Personally, I felt self-contained. All I wanted to do was sell. As the number of salespeople continued to grow, I was required to train new recruits. At first, I felt like it was an intrusion on my selling time, but I soon took pride in my ability to train people effectively. I know for a fact that I ultimately became the company's premier trainer. People that I trained always made money. Then there was the 100 sales plaque. Hanging from the wall in plain view of all salespeople was a beautiful large plaque with individual salespeople's names listed on it. 
The people were recognized for making 100 sales in one week. Whenever a salesperson accomplished that feat, his name went on the plaque, and he or she received a $100 bonus. When I first noticed the plaque, there were only two names on it, the manager and assistant manager. I began to zero in on getting those cash bonuses and surpassing whatever my predecessors had accomplished. In no time at all, my name was on that plaque. Then, it was on there again. And again, these people didn't know what to make of me. The longer I stayed there, the more I learned about the company and the people I worked for. The company had been created by a man in Atlanta who started selling merchandise out of his garage. His success spawned the individual branches like the one I worked for. When you were successful as a salesperson, they would set you up in your own office as a manager, which accounted for Michael Biviano's being an office manager in his 20s at such a young age. My street sense picked up a lot of information that I'm sure they would rather I didn't know. Let's just say it was no accident that I was the only African-American person on staff. I also learned that certain people partied extremely hard. Many times, Michael's office door would suddenly close for a few minutes at a time. He and whoever he had in there with him would come out smiling from ear to ear. Or their eyes would dart to and fro like they were nervous. But hey, what they did was their business. I was there to sell. Credit where it's due, though. Michael Biviano showed me a great deal of character. He was a hyper sort of guy, but he was steadily on the case. He was a pure hustler to his heart and could, uh, could apparently sell to anybody. At the, at the same time, I think he was quite enamored with me and the generally effective way I dealt with Caucasian people. For some reason, I learned to emphasize professionalism and having a balanced, respectful approach to selling. I continued concentrating on making as many hundred sale weeks as I could, and I still maintained my 10 sale minimum but the manipulative nature of Michael and his excessive greed combined with the fact that most of the people who worked there were hangers-on eventually got to me. 80% of our profits came from 20% of our people. One dark and rainy afternoon, I returned to the office after a miserable but successful sales day. I was dressed in sneakers and a casual jacket. I was completely soaked. When I walked into the office, I encountered the sales staff and the management sitting around drinking coffee and BS. Apparently, I was the only one on the entire group to make any sales that day. I immediately went to the secretary, as I did every day, to register my sales, pay for my merchandise, and leave. This particular day, I was more ready to leave than usual. When I finished my accounting and was ready to walk out, Michael decides to call a meeting. We all piled into his office and he began his quasi pep talk. Now you all need to take note of today's performance, he began. I know it's raining and you people tried hard, but these things happen. You have to stick to the principles and keep trying. He was mostly unhappy because his office, which competed nationally with the other offices, didn't bring in a substantial profit that rainy day. I realized he was trying to motivate his people, but I was soaking wet and I had made my sales. We continued listening in complete silence. 20 minutes later, he was still talking, trying his best to motivate these chumps. So I want all of you to go home. Yeah, yeah, I interrupted. Go home, think positive, follow the eight steps and all that. Can we go now? I barked impatiently. The room was dead silent. 
Michael stopped speaking abruptly and looked toward me with his patented piercing stare. You got a problem, Roger? He asked with a managerial inflection. Yeah, I got a problem, I snapped. I'm soaking wet. I've been out selling all day while you've been sitting in here dry. Now you want to keep me here all night with a pep talk? I made my sales, I punctuated. The room became completely silent again. Michael and I were looking directly at each other. I wasn't giving any ground. I was finished for the day and I wanted to go home. Look, I'll see you all tomorrow, Michael said quietly. Suddenly, everybody popped up from their seats. Roger, I want to talk to you, he said, as I was standing up too. All the other salespeople walked out of the office rolling their eyes as if I was supposed to be scared. Michael got up slowly from his seat and walked over to shut his office door. I continued standing. Roger, what's the problem, man? He asked quietly. His tone was quiet and pleading. Look, man, I said firmly, I do my job around here and I respect everybody. But when I go out and do what I'm supposed to do while everybody else gets to make excuses, I don't like it. It wouldn't be so bad, I continued, if I could come in here, take care of my business and go home. But I'm still sitting here soaking wet and I got to stay here all night and listen to you make a speech. I was adamant about how I felt and I could care less if he liked it or not. Manager or no manager, he could fire me if he wanted, but I wasn't going to be his puppy. Michael had not responded. I continued speaking. If you want to motivate these people, fine. I have no problem with that, I said. But I told you before, I don't need that shit. There's nothing you could say to motivate me. I spoke with unflinching seriousness. I motivate myself. And if I didn't do my job, that would be something else. But I do. So what do you want from me? Michael still had not said a word. Finally, he spoke up. You're right, Roger, he said quietly. You do bring in the business. But these other guys aren't like you, he pleaded. This is part of the business. You have to keep these guys motivated. Plus, I was talking, Michael insisted. You didn't have to interrupt me. You're right, I interjected. I apologize. But it's been a long day for me, I said. I just want to get out of these wet clothes. Okay, man, Michael said. But in the future, if you have a problem during my meeting, talk to me after. Okay? He asked with that pronounced stare. All right, I applied in a much calmer tone. We shook hands and I finally went home. What Michael didn't know was that I had heard about his decree to never hire a black person. I knew I was the exception. Since I had been so convincing during our interview and had sold so much, my presence was somewhat bittersweet. He was also unaware of the fact that his big mouth people had told me about how some of his extracurricular drug activities were, and I watched him manipulate people and laugh at them. I was not going to become someone that he would take for granted. I made him enough money. I could have opinions too. I think that evening put us on the same level. I walked out of his office and all the little puppy dog white dudes were lined up with the petrified looks on their faces. I quickly climbed into my car and made my way home. Enough madness for one day. The following morning, things were back to normal. 
I continued having a flawless and successful sales performance until one afternoon while working in Patterson, New Jersey. On this particular day, Michael had asked that I retrain one of the salespeople that someone else had trained previously. We were working in the heart of the city. When I went to work the other side of the main street and left the trainee with my car, which was filled with the merch, I told the guy to stay with the car and try to sell out of it. Suddenly, I looked up and this doe-eyed, no-selling chump was standing next to me. How come you know with the car? I snapped. Where are my keys? I asked. I thought you had them, the shaky young man replied. I shook my head in exasperation. We quickly walked around the corner to where my car was, and sure enough, it was gone. Someone had stolen my car and all the merchandise that was in it. I thought I would lose my mind. I was so angry I couldn't speak. We finally made it out of Patterson. I filed a police report. Several weeks later, they found the car. It had been stripped clean. After days of anger and remorse over letting this clown be responsible for my car, I realized something that would be instrumental in keeping me from having anything to do with owning stolen property, trading stolen property, or even being near stolen property. While sitting in the quiet of my apartment, I realized that I used to steal cars all the time. Maybe this was my payback. After that, my anger completely disappeared. I sort of shook my head, looked in the direction of the sky and said, okay, God, I got the message. It had taken many years, but that life of preteen delinquent thievery had come full circle. In a way, I felt glad that it was over. Metaphysical, superstitious, or whatever, I really did feel like it was payback. I accepted it. Fortunately, I had been saving my money diligently, and my auto insurance paid for much of the damage. I was able to purchase an oversized van, which was better for my work anyway. When I finally got my battered car back home, I repaired it as best I could and parked it. Now, I was driving the van exclusively. It was now July of the year 1980. All in all, it had been a wonderful summer so far. I had traveled all around the East Coast selling my wares, and I was still training diligently. Most days, I would not even go home before going to Tour Dojo. I had begun to carry my tournament tote bag everywhere I went. You never knew when I might want to drop in uh, on a school or something. Like Mr. Laws before him, Mr. Ford did not frown on seeking out new information and visiting other schools. I would come to Tour Dojo after a day on the road, and I would have a huge wad of cash that I would simply reach into my pocket and hand to Sensei Ford for safekeeping during class. I never once thought about counting it. Mr. Ford was a man of honor. I was at home in his dojo. That was the summer I was awarded my black belt. Had it, been a, it had been a long road, and I had trained my heart out. I had learned a great deal from my instructors, who were also my friends. When I came to Tour Dojo, I was strong but clumsy. I was muscled but heavy. By the time I could officially wear a black belt of my own around my waist, I was about 20 pounds lighter, several steps faster, and ironically, I was a good degree stronger. Mr. Ford had emphasized awareness. He would continually remind us of life's realities. Any night you walk out of this dojo could be the night, he would tell us. 
Don't let yourselves be taken by surprise or lulled to sleep by overconfidence. If a man gets in your face and you can't avoid it, you better hurt him to keep him from hurting you. Sensei Ford would preach as if it was a gospel. If you get into trouble for hurting somebody, so be it, he said. I'd rather be judged by 12 than carried by six. Having been in several street situations myself, I could certainly appreciate his logic. We had trained so hard in that little school that we repelled all would-be tough guys. In the summer heat and humidity, we trained with the front door open. We would draw large crowds in that beleaguered city of Plainfield. We had earned each other's respect and we had earned the city's respect. We also gained a substantial level of respect from our peers in the arts. I was proud to be part of this unique brotherhood. This author would like to take this opportunity to express his sincere felt gratitude to the friends, brothers, and comrades who were regular members of Tora Dojo. You were there for me when there was not much else. We shared some outstanding victories and suffered some painful defeats, but we stuck together. We respected each other and we cared. I will always be indebted to the brothers at the top of the hill for the spirit and the knowledge they shared with me. To all the founding black belts of Tora Dojo, Wayne Ford, Papa San, Kenny Reed, Michael Burroughs, Greg Big, and Mike Washington, I love you all. Thank you so very much. But I must say a special thank you to the youngest member of the quintuplet, Mike Washington. Little Mike, as we used to call him, was the single most inspiring individual of them all for me then. Not because he was the best or the worst, but because he worked so hard and carried himself so well. Ordinarily, that wouldn't be such a big thing, except that when I first met this young man, he was 16 years old. It is because of him and only him that I have the kicking prowess I am now known for. I followed him very closely he had flawless legs back then. Little Mike would come to class day in and day out and never utter a word on most nights, but he trained like he was on a mission. His flawless kicking ability made me swear to myself that I would someday duplicate his efforts. Before he was promoted, he and I were the only underbelts in the school. He was brown and I was green. At 16, he inspired me to be just a little bit better. For that, I am eternally grateful. The remainder of the summer turned out to be one of the most enjoyable that I can ever remember. I was a grown man now. In September, I would be 25 years old, and I had survived without being incarcerated or drug addicted. I had a great deal to be thankful for. Although my mother and sisters, who live far away from me now, seem to be having more problems with every month that passed, and now two of my sisters had children and neither child had a father. It very often felt strange and painful to have grown so much while they lost so much ground. I thought about them constantly. WM Industries had served its purpose. I had learned a lot about sales, but Michael and his crew got trickier and trickier, and they exhibited less and less respect. Michael seemed to get dollar and cents results from them, but most of them had no respect for customers. Many times, while working with different salespeople, I noticed how discourteous and downright shitty they were. If they approached a, a customer young or old, 
and didn't get the sale, they would curse them. That definitely wasn't my style. Not only was I a minority as far as a race was concerned, I seemed to be one of those few who had any home training. It was as if Michael Bibiano, this young Svengali, had them in a capitalist trance. Michael now had his girlfriend doing secretarial duties around the office because she couldn't make it as a salesperson. She was an extremely hyper and aggressive character who would say the first thing that popped into her head. Though I had learned a great deal from my association with this company, I had grown fatigued by the raw nature of the business, and I certainly didn't want any office of my own. I wanted to be more professional. My skills had gotten so good that they had become part of my makeup. Everybody I dealt with, even socially, had become easier to read. I had developed a high-powered perception, and I had become extremely positive. It had gotten so that I repelled all negative thought. My glass was always half full instead of half empty, but I felt that somehow I needed to graduate to something bigger. I could see through the business like a glass now. I found myself constantly wandering mentally. I still had my future to concern myself with. We were all congregated in the meeting room as we were each morning. They started clapping, yelling, and screaming as they always did. Suddenly, the testimonials began. First one, then another. Then Dana took the floor and began her testimonial. Amidst the clapping and screaming, she told her story. This is the best business in the world, she screamed. Where else can you make this kind of money working for yourself, outdoors, having fun, she continued, her weak attempt to pump up the group of about 15 salespeople. Michael stood in the corner, as he always did, with that sly smile of his painted on, of his, painted on his face. Dana continued, you all should be thrilled to work here, the petite young woman with dyed bleach blonde hair yelled. You'll never find another job like this one, she screamed. All the people were clapping almost in unison. The place I worked before. The place I worked before, Dana screamed. I was working with nothing but a bunch of niggers. The enthusiastic crowd screamed even louder, but an alarm sounded in my head. You know how these people are, she continued. They're nothing. They're nobody. Who wants to be around them? She continued. Suddenly, Michael and I made direct eye contact. He looked away quickly and began trying immediately to grab Dana's attention. Dana, he yelled while pulling on her sleeve. He looked back over toward me and quickly looked away again. By now, I was shaking my head very slowly up and down. It was just a matter of time, I was thinking. One way or another, they always let you know. Dana, Michael said again in an even louder voice as Dana continued describing her terrible it was to be around, how terrible it was to be around a bunch of niggas. Michael finally got her attention. Soon the session was over. I was the first to leave the room. I was the only black face in the place. I walked very casually out to my van, opened the doors, and began removing my merchandise from inside. Suddenly, Dana came running outside to supposedly apologize by Michael's instruction. Hey, she said quietly. I didn't mean nothing by that. When I said nigger, I wasn't talking about you. You're all right. 
she said, as her voice was becoming steadily louder. You're, you're not like them, she insisted. You're different. That's where you're wrong, I replied very quietly with an exasperated look on my face. I'm not different. I have the same skin as they do, I continued. Only you don't know them and you don't care to know them. That's okay, Dana, I said quietly. Don't worry about it. Okay, she responded quickly and with a speedy stutter step, she walked away. Once I was finished inventorying my merchandise, I asked Michael to come out and verify it. He was more standoffish than I had ever seen him. He attended to pick up where Dana left off, but I had nothing more to say on the matter. I was leaving, no matter what. Dana had just helped me decide. I didn't blame her as much as I did white people in general. It wasn't a surprise. In spite of the many months that I had worked for them, I could see no real future having the job that Michael had. He tried to convince me to stay, but I was deaf to his rhetoric. Moments later, I drove away. Certainly, I reshaped my life and moved on, but I had learned a great deal from this experience. Several years later, I placed a random call to Michael at his home after finding his number among a stack of old papers. He seemed very glad to hear from me. He made it his business to tell me I was one of the best he ever trained. Apparently, sometime after I left, all his boys had staged a mass mutiny. He would ultimately close the doors of his office never to open them again. His people had learned their lessons well. According to Michael, their efforts soon failed too. I had begun my journey into learning about the physical and social grind, but now I had experienced an introduction into the business grind as well. To coin a phrase from the times, I was determined to keep on trucking. Even when you are not having your best day, keep on trucking, and you too will find your way back to balance. Thank you for joining us again today for another episode of the Round 12. May you live as long as you want and never want as long as you live. May the worst days of your future be like the best days of your past. And may you continue to answer life's bell every time. Until we meet again, time!